are the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. <clears throat> day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's just pray before Pete comes. Father, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you've given us um, it as one of your free gifts. Father, we thank you for the truth that is contained on it. Father, we thank you for the faith that you've given us to stand on it. Father, I thank you for the life that it brings to us. And so, God, now we pray that you will help us to treasure it, that you will help us to listen to it. And as Pete speaks to us, will you help us to be listening for your voice speaking to us? through what Pete has to share. Father, help us to hear you speak to us. Will you help us to be listening out for how you're speaking to us individually and personally? God, we're going to need you to help us to do that. Otherwise, our ears will just be deafened to your voice. And so, will you come and help us to hear the whispers of your voice to us and to our hearts this morning? And will you help us to apply whatever it is that we hear from you this morning? Will you help Pete? Will you give him the words to say? Will you guard and guide his words? Will you help him to know and feel the power of your Holy Spirit working in him and speaking through him this morning? I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Good morning, folks. Sorry it's so warm. I think we've opened every door and every window we can possibly can, so... Hopefully there's a, there's, a, there's a breeze comes from somewhere. Um, I would say Jen Nixon stopped me in the first service, and I suppose it's more important than the second service. She said to me at the first service, this better not be long, Pete, because the reports are the sun's going to disappear at 4 o'clock. So I will try and keep this as short as possible for you so you can get out into the sun. Um, this morning we're chatting on Psalm 19, and on Friday morning, to be honest, I was in a bit of a mess, and I sat down at our kitchen table at home, I've been reading all these books on Psalm 19. It's whirring around my head. And I must have just had one of those looks on my face. And Jacob sat down at the, the kitchen table beside me. 
And straight-faced, he said, uh, how's the sermon going? And to be honest, I was a wee bit taken aback because Jacob wouldn't normally ask about you and that sort of stuff. And he said, how's the sermon going? And I said, to be honest, kid, not too well. So Jacob then decided to offer me some help. And he mentioned two things that John Irvine does in a good sermon. And he meant this with the best advice. He said, number one, John Irvine puts some humor in there. And he said, that's the main thing people remember. Number two, he says, John asks a lot of rhetorical questions. It's like, right, I must do that. And Jake finished off by stating that although it looks like John Dad's done a lot of work, Jacob's 90% sure he ad-libs a lot of it as he goes along. So if that's, my, that's the model that I'm going for, I'll, uh, I'll use that as my blueprint and try to get started. So when John asked me to preach in Psalm 19 a few weeks back, it was as I started to go through the passage and starting to read all the commentaries as you do, I started to realize I'd maybe bitten off a wee bit more than I can chew. And I read this not early on in it, C.S. Lewis, when he was writing on this psalm, he considered Psalm 19 to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. High praise indeed. Psalm 19, as we know, was written by David, and it was actually written to be sung. One of the commentators this week, which I just hadn't thought of the psalm like this, had mentioned that Jesus, being a Jew, would have grown up singing this psalm. Jesus, as a boy, would have grown up singing this psalm. And in singing this psalm, God's people celebrate how creation speaks of its maker and the way that Scripture speaks to the soul. Thankfully for us, and for me anyway, that was trying to understand this, this psalm falls quite neatly into three sort of chunks for us. And if you open your Bibles, we're going to stay in this psalm, so do open your Bible this morning and sit and look at it. It'll help you, because I'm going to be stumbling through it, and you'll get to see where I'm going with stuff. So verses 1 to 6, you'll be able to see, is looking at creation, God's unspoken word. Verses 7 to 10, the next sort of chunk down, is looking at the Scriptures, God's perfect word to us. And verses 11 to 14 is how we should respond. Alistair Begg, when he preached it, summed it up far better than me. It was 1 to 6, look up. Look up at creation. Verses 7 to 10, look down. Look down at the Scriptures. And 11 to 14, look in. Look into our hearts. Look up, look down, look in. That's the, that's the points we're going to follow this morning. So the opening few verses of Psalm 19 begin with David looking up to the heavens, and it's, it's words we all know and recall from Genesis 1. If you just follow with me, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims His handiwork, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. David then, however, in 3 and 4, mentions something that at first when we read it, it appears to be a wee bit of a contradiction. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard, their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. David states, if you, if you run that through again, no speech or words, but he ends with the line, their voice goes out through the earth. Well, you see, this is a poem, isn't it? This is a poem. And I don't know what you were like at school. Maybe you liked poetry, you didn't like poetry. But David wants us to think for a He just wants us to stop. You see, this is a wee bit of a paradox, isn't it? Speechless speech. David just wanted us, just, just stop there a wee second till you get where I'm going with this. And I think we can get this quite quickly, to be honest, after the week we've all just had. The weather has been first class. The weather has been just ridiculous. 
I'm sure everybody's been out and about. And I don't know if you're on Facebook or Twitter or even if you're in WhatsApp groups. People have been piling photographs in of Castlewell, Mermerlick Bay. The pictures have been flowing in all around. Mountains, beaches, seas, cliffs, clear blue skies. We were sending photographs flat out. But you have to ask the question, why do we get stopped in our tracks at beautiful scenery? We're often left speechless, aren't we? When you turn that last corner, do you know you go over the wooden sort of walkway in Murlock Bay, and just before you get there, you just come over that last wee hump, the sun's shining, and for the first time you see the sea, the beach, and the backdrop there is coming down to the Mourne Mountains. And we often feel compelled, don't we? we? We say something like, would you just look at that? Look at that. And in fact, if we're being honest, very often we stop. We actually can't walk on. We actually physically stop sometimes when we see, maybe you've come up Hare's Gap, Davy Henney be the man from that, and you just come over the top of a lip at some point, and the mountains just open up, and you don't just see it and walk on, you physically stop. Look at that. Just take, take a moment there, look at that. And of course, we make sure ourselves take out the, photo, the phone, don't we? We look at it, and we say, we must get a photograph of that. But why does a lump of rock and some sand provokes such a reaction in us. It's just mountains and water and sand. How, how does that stop us in our tracks? You see, creation gets us, like any other art, because it is great art. Creation sings to us of a higher power. It reveals design, complexity, and beauty. It all points to a divine creator without a single word ever been spoken speechless speech. You see, this is what we call the general revelation, and it's made to all people everywhere, a voice that goes out through all the earth. Paul talks about this as well in Romans 10, 18, and he actually quotes this psalm. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. The speechless voice of creation is speaking to us all. The old hymn, as I'm getting older, I'm noticing I'm liking the older hymns now and the younger hymns, the newer hymns don't make as much sense to me, but an old hymn from Addison sums up these words really well. What though there nor real voice nor sound amid their radiant orbs be found, in reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice, forever singing as they shine, the hand that's made us is divine. And in verse 5 and 6, if you keep following with me, David continues to look up at the skies, introducing the sun, dominating the sky, magnificent yet obedient. And we don't need any reminder of how great the sun is, do we, after that week we've just had? Like yesterday, it was just great. It just, it's just great. David knows that creation speaks of a divine creator. But he also knows, and this is where he goes on, you can see the logic of where he's going. If you want to learn anything more, we need something else, don't we? It's all very well been stopped in your tracks. Look at that. That's great. But you need something else to help, to help us. And that's where David goes in this next chunk. After looking up at creation, verse 7, he moves to look down at God's special revelation to us in his word. We're looking down now. So do keep your Bibles open because this is the chunk where you'll really benefit from having the Bible there. So let's look at 7 to 10. As a side note, 
I should say, if you, you want an expert and not a, a muppet like me to lead you through this bit in the psalm, and in particular the following verses, I'd recommend David Kidner's excellent commentary. And in fact, if you go get it, you'll probably see that I've probably stolen a couple of lines from him. So if you can turn to those verses in your Bible, we're going to follow the pattern. It is poetry after all. Do you remember that from school? Lines that rhymed and the end words. That's sort of where David's going with this. And we're going to follow the pattern that he's laid out in this poem to help our understanding. Every statement in, from seven to nine follows the same poetic formula that repeats through these verses. The first line tells us what God is, what God's word is, and it's followed each time by telling us what God's word does. So it's what God's word is, and then the next line is going to tell us what God's word does, and then that just repeats as we go down. So we're going to take the first lines of each of those, looking at the first lines in the poem. What is God's word? And you see those nouns listed through the verses there. The law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the rules of the Lord, and the ordinances. You see, the law here is translated as Torah. So what we're talking about here is a comprehensive term for God's revealed will. What we're looking at is the truth attested to by God himself. That's what David's trying to say. Just so you know where I'm going with this, this is the truth as attested by God himself. We accept, and it's written for us as well, 1 John 5, 9, we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. You see, this isn't just somebody's ramblings. This isn't just random thoughts or writings about somebody we think might have been wise. No, no, no. This is the testimony of God. And again, if you just keep following with me, after each of those nouns at the start of those lines, David follows up with an adjective, which tells us how we should view those scriptures. So the noun tells us what it is, and the adjective tells us how to view them. And he's saying here, the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. And the rules of the Lord are true. I think David is trying to get us to see the scriptures here this morning as a starting point. He's trying to say, this is the place you go to first. I should say at this point, my kids take great pleasure in mocking me. I've never met a more abusive bunch of children in my life. And they like nothing. One of the ones that they particularly like to slag me off is I like to watch YouTube videos of this old master carpenter called Paul Sellers. And I, I, I'm useless. If Johnny Bingham ever came and watched me trying to put a shelf up in the kitchen, he'd be wetting himself. But I watch videos of Paul Sellers using hand tools, effortlessly making dovetail joints and these beautiful pieces of furniture. I'll, I'll even admit something. I even downloaded some of these videos onto my phone so I could watch them on the plane when we went on holidays. And I'll tell you another wee bit. I actually was watching them on the plane, and my youngest daughter, I don't know if you know Lois, she said to me, what are you watching? As we were, and I said, uh, Paul Sellers. And she said, you're such a loser. And I thought, that's, uh, that's me summed up well. But one thing you learn if you watch a boy like that work, and Jeff and Johnny probably know better than me, is the importance when he's doing something of this reference face. There'll be one side of a piece of wood that he's working on that he gives all his effort and attention to. He works and works on it until he can be sure it's true and square. And it's like, do you know those golfers that play, you know, you see them in the greens and they're about to take a putt and they maybe walk back a wee bit and they, 
He does all that sort of because he's watching just to see and he's got his, and he does a little bit more planing and he goes and goes until he's sure that it's true and square. And it's this one face of the wood that he used to measure and line up everything else. Once he knows that he's got one true side he can rely on, he can use it to keep everything else right. If I can get that right, everything else will be right from it. And this is what David's trying to say to you guys in, this, in the passage to all of us this morning. If you're looking for one thing to base your life on, one thing you can take as true, one thing that you can rely on no matter what, then look to the Scriptures, the testimony of the Lord. Why? Because it's God's Word. And as He tells us here, it's perfect. It's sure. It's true. When so much in our society today is changing at such a rapid pace, I'm definitely starting to feel old. And lots of things are maybe going wrong. You see stuff in the news, and a lot of the old traditions are been ripped up, and it's all new, and everybody's pushing. New is better. It can be confusing, can't it? Like I'm, even, I'm struggling now to keep pace with the trends and what's going on. David has a message to us today, right the way from the Old Testament. David's sending a message from the Old Testament for us today to say, you want to make sense of all that? You want to know what's right and wrong? Know your Bible. Read the Scriptures because that's your only true reference point to start from. And lastly, in the three verses, David explains each line what the perfect word does for us. And if you follow on just the lines underneath, the lines we've discussed, reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes. Tim Keller actually has a nice way to sum this up. He says, do you know when you're 20 and you look back at some of the things you did as a teenager, you cringe? And if you're a teenager now, maybe thinking, ah, I've got it all sorted, I promise you, when you hit 20, you're going to look back and go, oh, for flip's sake. And then when you're 30, you look back in your 20s and you go, ah, some of those things I did. In fact, do you ever get that where you're walking somewhere and you remember a memory of something you did even years ago and you sometimes even just, oh you, oh, you can't believe it. And when you're 30 and 40, and it just keeps going as you get older. And what does Tim Keller conclude from all that? Whether we like it or not, there are things we're doing right now that we will regret in years to come. Things that 10 years from now, you're going to remember you're doing now that you will bury your hands, and I'll do the same, probably me more than most. If ever there's a man that's gifted in tripping over his own feet or putting his foot in his mouth, I'm it. But Tim Keller says this, how do you stop being such a fool? How do you become wiser? We go to the testimony of the Lord because it is sure and true. As David says, making wise the simple. That's as good a reason as any, I think, to open your scriptures every day, isn't it? To stop being a fool. David concludes this section by saying the scriptures are to be more desired, sorry, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. As David thinks through creation and then through the scriptures, he turns to look inward. How do you respond? David's run through creation. He's run through the scriptures. Now how is he going to respond? And this is the bit where the poem nearly takes a wee bit of a tact because this comes with a warning. 11 to 14, look in. This is where we start to look in. Verse 11, follow with me. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. You see, David is saying here that God's word is a bit of a double-edged sword. There's blessings. Yeah, there's blessings. But there's also warnings. And he goes on to warn us about three specific things. 
Uh, the first thing is hidden faults. Verse 12, declare me innocent from hidden faults. So, so what does he mean by these hidden faults? David is describing those things against God that we're not even aware are those things we might even have forgotten. Unknown, unknown sins. It sounds a wee bit like a Donald Rumsfeld speech, doesn't it? The unknown unknowns. But even though certain sins may be completely unknown to us, David stated here that there's no hiding place. For we don't get away with pleading ignorance. You see, and this is going to come as we are going to know what this is. I look around you, I can see everybody wiping, wiping brows and shaking heads trying to stay awake. This next bit we know only too well sat in this room. David compares the law of God to the heat described earlier in verse 6. And there's nothing hidden from the heat. We have all the doors open here this morning now, and there's nowhere in this room I think you could sit where you wouldn't be feeling the heat. And C.S. Lewis makes this point. He has felt the sun, perhaps in the desert, searching him out in every nook of shade from where he attempted to hide from it. So he feels the law searching out all the hiding places of his soul. I'm not sure if you've ever been abroad to somewhere really hot. We recently took our five kids to Spain for the first ever foreign holiday. That was about as exciting as it sounds. And we were there in the middle of a heat wave. It was 40 degrees in Spain. Now, it's fair to say, if there's a place overweight, overweight pale Northern Irish men shouldn't be, it's in 40 degree heat. I, I just don't have the DNA or the setup or the experience of 40 degree heat. It hit me like a brick. The heat was everywhere, a bit like this room, and there was no escaping it in Spain. Like the first day I went out and he sat in the sun and the sweat was dripping off my nose. I was like, right, I need to get shade. So I got a seat and I set it underneath this tree and I was totally in shade and the water still running off me. And, and do you know how cursed that land is nearly? At night time, when the sun goes away, do you know here in Northern Ireland when the sun drops, generally everybody's like, I must shut that window now or get a coat on? Not in Spain. The sun goes away and that heat just stays. It's like somebody forgot to turn the oven off. And, and here's a picture you'll never get out of your head. I lay on top of the sheets in a pair of boxers only, just looking at the ceiling with the sweat running off me. It was just a picture of a man who's broken. But what David's saying here is, that's the same as God's law. David's stating that nothing's hidden. The law searches out all those hidden places in our hearts, exposing sins we didn't even know we've committed. But there still are sins, you see. There's no excuses. The second thing he warns us about here are presumptuous sins. So what does he mean by presumptuous sins? Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Presumptuous sins, what are they? Well, they're sort of the opposite of these unknown sins, these hidden sins. These are the sins that we commit full well in the knowledge that it is against the divine commands. Presumptuous sins, these are a wee bit like, um, if you've got kids or you, you know kids, it's a wee bit like, do you know when you tell your kids explicitly, do not do that, and then you come back around the corner and they've done it anyway? Rowan Meek, how are you? Those sins where you say, whatever you do, don't touch that, and you come back in, and there he said, he knows he shouldn't do it, but he does it anyway. So he has actively gone against what I've said. He knows he's done it wrong. But this is where Paul ratchets up the, the, the pressure on us a little bit. You see, David says in this next line of that, let them not have dominion over me. You see, 
there's an added danger to presumptuous sins, and this is why David is so concerned. Because the biggest problem with presumptuous sins is, comes around because we usually try to get around them, don't we? When you try to explain away what you've done, or we try to make excuses for what we've done, or even better, do you know when you get away with doing something? You get away with it all together. No one knows. No one got hurt. That great Northern Ireland phrase, sure, what's the harm? Sure, what's the harm? We say, I'll just say nothing and move on. Nobody knows. Nobody saw it. I've got away with it. I'll just say nothing and we'll move on. But when this happens, and this is why David wants us to, to, to know this this morning, we tend to go back to the scene of the crime, don't we, and do it again and again and again. We know this about some sins that we'd rather just keep hidden. Do you know those secret vices we have? All those things that we don't want to tell anyone. Those vices that we keep turning back to. This is the reason why David's so concerned. You see, because when presumptuous sins, when we do that, very often they repeat. And they repeat. Because we've got away with it. We're all right. Nobody knows. And we go back again and again. And what David means here is they have dominion over us which is another way of saying, see those sins that you think you're, you're getting away with? They end up enslaving us. And you can't serve two masters, can you? To, to remember this a wee bit better, we're reading a poem here written by this guy, David, who only knows too well. David is writing this poem. If you read First Samuel, he is writing this out of pure experience. When he first caught sight of Bathsheba. And we, myself and Lorianne, had the, I don't want to say misfortune, or the fortune of teaching our young kids this a couple of weeks ago. And basically, when I got it out and was reading through it, you've got adultery and murder, and you have to turn that into a Sunday school lesson. It was a, it was a tough ask, I can tell you. But to illustrate it, Lorian and I played this game with the kids, and this sort of sums up what he's trying to say. We used three black cups and one red ball. Do you know the old game where you put the cup over the the ball, one of the cups, and you start to move them around. You know that old game? And you keep going and keep going, and you stop, and you go, where's the ball? I have to say, I'm obviously terrible at it, because most of the time the kids were going, I know what you're trying to do, Pete, but it's in cup number one. And I was like, no, no, but watch, watch, watch. And then, Pete, it's in cup number three. And I was like, yeah, yeah, but no, no, no. So it was really hard for me to get it going with the kids. But we mentioned to them that it was a bit like David who'd committed a sin. He could just, he thought he could just hide it underneath a cup. And then he thought, well, if I just keep moving around the cups, if I just keep planning, being clever, no one knows. She didn't, you wouldn't know where it is. I can get away with this. This is great. No one will know a thing. For the last game of this in Sunday school with the kids, we swapped the three black cups with three plastic see-through cups and played the game again. Well, there was no game at all now, is there? No matter, as soon as you put the ball under a cup, you can see it. You move the cups around, you're sliding about, you're talking, you're trying to pretend you're cool. And the kids can just see the ball moving about. Without even having to lift a cup, the kids know instantly where it is. Move the cups as much as you want, but the ball's just right there, and it's there, and it's there, and it's there. And it's, there's the ball, Pete. You see, David thought he could hide his sins, and life would just go on. But David warns us here, hey guys, watch, watch, I know this. I know this, guys. Unrepented sins, they don't go away. They don't go away, guys. They fester. And they actually start to muddy the whole stream. 
David, as the story plays out, you see, became enslaved to his sin, blind to the fact that his sin was just pulling in further and further and further. And if you'd bumped into him at that stage in the story and said, well, how's it going? He'd say, ah, grand. Nothing to see here. I've got everything under control. What he didn't realize at that time in the story was that his sin was as easy to see as a ball under a see-through cup. He thought he got away with it. And thirdly, we move on to this last sin, where he says here in verse 13, the last warning, then I shall be blameless and innocent of the great transgression. What does he mean by this great transgression? Well, the great transgression is mentioned in the Bible. It's mentioned actually three times for us in the book of Exodus, Exodus 32, 21, 30, and 31. When Moses was away, the people put the gold in the fire. We all know the story, and they made the golden calf. We all know that. And I'm sure some of you are sat here this morning saying, well, Pete, no harm to you. I'm clear of that one. I get what you mean about hidden sins. I get what you mean about these presumptuous sins. But Pete, I've yet to spend a weekend making a golden calf in the back garden. This one doesn't apply to me. I'm off the hook. So for the great discretion, the great transgression, I'm home and dry. Two out of three. We're not bad here this morning. But what David is meaning here by the great, this great transgression is apostasy. And what does that mean? Well, that means a total abandonment of the Christian faith. And David's saying here, do you see the slide, guys? Do you not? Can, can you see where I'm going with this? And he's nearly trying to tell you to go back up to the top. Go back up to the top. Do you not see it, guys? See those hidden sins? Those sins you didn't even know of? Repent of those. Repent of those. Because those hidden sins, guys, they can turn lead to presumptuous sins. And he's sort of saying, guys, and see your presumptuous sin, whatever you do, get on your knees, ask for forgiveness of those. Because he's warning us here that they can lead down the path and down the path to the great transgression. And when you turn around and realize you've completely turned your back on God. See, he's saying, be, be so careful of sin. Like, take it so seriously. David's saying, don't get comfortable with your sin. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to cover it. Don't shrug your shoulders. Stop moving the cups around. David's nearly saying this here this morning, be warned, because your sins could cost you everything. Those sins you don't know, repent. Those sins that you do know, repent. Just stop. Repent, because it might end up costing you everything. You see, the Scriptures, when you start reading them, tell us that we're more flawed than we ever realize. But the Scriptures also tell us that we are much more loved than we ever realize. God's love for us is summed up perfectly in John's Gospel when he said, God so loved the world that he gave us his only Son. You see, God had a plan for our sin. Because he knew we were lost, God sent his Son. And we're nearly done, folks. You'll be glad to hear in that heat. We'll get outside and get a breath. David's asking in this psalm, verse 12, declare me innocent. Verse 13, that I shall be blameless. Verse 14, be acceptable in your sight. That's what Jesus offers. We did nothing, nothing to deserve it, nor can we do anything to ever earn it. But Jesus went to the cross, guys, to take the punishment of our sins, to die and take the blame for our sins, so that we can come to him to repent and ask for forgiveness. You see, and I'm finishing up here, instead of allowing our sins to trap us, 
and pull us further down. Jesus saying, come to me, repent, be washed clean, and I'll give you rest. You see, because of what Jesus has done for us, we get to stand in front of our heavenly Father. And he can look at us and declare us innocent. And our Father can look upon us and declare us blameless. What amazing love that is. What amazing grace that is. I'm just going to pray, folks, the last verse there for us this morning as we finish. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.